Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark from the hit television show Shark Tank, and you're listening to the Underdog Podcast. I've been too high up to fall, question marks, what's up with y'all? All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, underdogs, underdogs. All we know is over time, barking like some underdogs. Underdogs, underdogs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Underdog Podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest here with me. Rhea, how are you? Pamela, I am so good. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. My goodness, you have been radiant since the second that I came on this screen. I'm like, Rhea is just a beast. I can't wait to hear the stories and all of the things. So thank you so much for being here, Rhea. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You know, and you're such an inspiration to me. You know, I was doing searching online. The success that you've had, the person that you are, how you're giving back to the community is really inspiring. So kudos to you. Thank you so much, Rhea. It's it's a gift. It's honestly a gift. And I'm blessed because I meet people like you throughout throughout the journey. And we just, you know, rising tide uh, rises all ships is what they say, right? Everything, mm-hmm. everybody in the mm-hmm. shipyard rises together. So I love that. I love that. And I just honestly can't wait to get into your story to like learn about all the awesomeness that you're doing in the realms of money and capital raising, like all the amazingness that you are. And so I am super curious, Rhea, what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? And I know that's a wicked loaded question, but I feel like there's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's so interesting to think about like the origin story. So before you and I started recording, we were talking about our family stories. And so my grandparents are immigrants from China. Like, you know, they came to escape communism. Actually, my grandfather came prior to World War II. And, you know, very typical immigrant story. They showed up with $20 in their pocket. On my mom's side, they had seven kids, if you can believe it. Everyone is in San Francisco. So I'm, I guess, a third generation. And so my mom was raised, you know, in a very traditional Chinese family where like girls worth a lot. Her mom expected her to just like graduate high school, get married and like have babies. Like that's it. That was the ambition. And so I think my mom in particular was really clear about the fact that as a girl, I should have all of the opportunities that my brothers had, right? In a way, it was almost like I was living out the dream that she wanted for herself. So really, I mean, I I came out of the womb fierce. I don't know about you. I'm sure you did too, right? Which is like, I am here, I am loud, I know what I want, and I'm going to go get it. So I don't really know where that comes from, other than it was an innate part of me. But I really credit my parents for encouraging and supporting that drive. I mean, so I was just going to get get it done. So I shipped myself off to boarding school at 14 years old, which like in retrospect seems crazy. And at the time I was like, of course, it's what I'm going to do, right? Obviously, I'm, I'm about to see the world. I'm about to make things happen. I've you know bounced around, lived in Europe, lived in Asia, lived in Africa. And then after college, I ended up in New York City. And I was a 26-year-old executive director of a nonprofit here in New York called Breakthrough New York. And we identified high-achieving, low-income kids and uh, support them for 10 years on the road to college, so to and through college. And where I am now is I actually coach people on how to fundraise because I was a 26-year-old ED. I didn't know anything, like nothing. My first day on the job, I Googled, what does an executive director do and how do you fundraise? Because I was so clueless, right? And it took me 12 and a half years. I built up this multi-million dollar nonprofit. And then I was like, wow, I'm freaking tired. (laughs) But also... Why did it take me so long to figure this? Like, I'm a smart person. I work hard. Like, this really should not have taken this long. And I think, unfortunately, 
a lot of people in the nonprofit sector are given these very, very big jobs with the mandate to make the most important things happen in the world, like clean oceans, sending kids to college, making sure women have health care, you know, voting rights, you name it, right? Nonprofits play mm-hmm. a really important role in our community. And yet these poor people are out here being asked to do these big jobs with zero training and zero support. So I was like, I know, why don't I just teach people all the stuff that I learned that I made a ton of mistakes, right? And you and I were talking about, you've learned through mistakes. And so they can learn from my mistakes. They can make new and different mistakes. That's what I do now. I have a podcast, I have a book, I do free webinars and I have a group coaching program in order to just save people the heartache and the headache of of learning by doing and learning by making mistakes and instead just getting really good really fast. I love that, Rhea. I love that. And I mean, like, you mentioned like a bit about your childhood too, that you just came out with this fire in you, mm-hmm. which is amazing. So what did you want to be as a kid growing up? Like, what was your dream? Oh my God. Well, you know, I think there were a lot of dreams, but you know, when you're a little Asian kid growing up in San Francisco, you know, I grew up in the eighties and nineties, right? So it was like, we don't have all the jobs that we have now. Like social media didn't exist. The internet didn't exist. So it was like, okay, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant or a dentist, right? Like those are the four things. So when I was a kid, I was like, I guess I'll be a lawyer because I'm really bad at math and science. Yep. <laughs> Thank yep. God I didn't go to law school because I don't know any happy lawyers. But the thing about the law that really appealed to me is the idea of fighting for people, you know, fighting mm. on the on behalf of the right and the good. And I think that's what I do in nonprofit, right? Like every single day, every person who works in the nonprofit goes to work for exactly to your podcast, the underdog, like people who can't speak for themselves, that don't have access, that don't have resources. And we are there to make the world a little bit more fair. And so I think coming out of the womb, I don't know where it comes from, but I just had a very strong sense of my purpose on this planet is to leave it a little bit better. I love that. I love that. And it's just, it's been a fire that's been ingrained in you since day one, which is what I love. And I love that it's kind of ran in your family as well. I mean, just from your grandparents coming here and all of that stuff. And so why should for you? So who or what inspired you the most kind of growing up? That's a good question. I mean, I feel like I had so many inspirations. I mean, I think my mom for sure was one, right? So I think her sense of understanding that it wasn't fair that she didn't get the same opportunities because she was a girl and she and her sisters didn't get the same, like that I think really inspired a sense of justice and and commitment to, to fairness. I think I had amazing teachers along the way who really inspired my love of learning. You know, I was a big nerd as a kid. I loved to read. You know, I can think about my school librarian who would books decide like, oh, here are the books that you might really like. <laughs> it's funny, I was talking the other day. Mr. Rogers, I think, was a big inspiration. Like we I grew up, you're probably younger than I am, but we were like the Mr. Rogers generation of like, oh, mm-hmm. it's good to be kind to people. I'm like, yeah, I want to live in that Mr. Rogers world. So this is a couple of key ones. Oh, you know, a big inspiration actually is Maya Angelou. So I remember reading when I was a kid. So again, I'm probably a little bit more mature than I should have been reading. But when I was a kid, I read, I know why the cage bird sings. And I, my mind was blown that this kind of story could be told in such a heartbreaking and true and beautiful way. And so the other thing is I, I love writing. I love reading. I love beautiful prose and fiction. And I'm really dedicated, I think, to helping people 
to have a voice in the world. I absolutely love that. I love that. And so you mentioned you got into this executive director role and you're like, uh, what's an executive director and what do I do? What what led you to that? So, so you mentioned like, you didn't want to go to law school and like all these other things and your different options. So what led you into that particular like nonprofit space? Yeah, so good story. So actually I had been a part of that nonprofit when I was a kid in San Francisco. They helped oh, me to wow. kind of see this whole world. You know, I, then I interned in high school and college, whatever. But after college, I thought, actually thought I was going to be on a journalism track, right? So early 2000s, I was like, yeah, this internet thing isn't going to go away. Like seeing print journalism as a growth industry. So I ended up working for the national office in San Francisco, kind of by accident. I just called them up and I was like, hey, I was a student back in the 90s. And I'm just wondering if you have like any volunteer opportunities. And they're like, actually, we have a job opening. I was like, okay, cool. Kind of worked my way up and to the point that I got recruited away to run our New York office. So I, I overstated it when I said that I was clueless. I was clueless about the business side, right? Like I knew the program side, but I didn't really understand fundraising. I didn't understand. I mean, you know, you're a business person, like all of the the revenue, the expenses, the infrastructure, the hiring, the staffing, like all of the business side, I was a complete newbie. And it was, you know, it was a hard lesson learned. It's full of tough knocks for sure. And it's not rocket science, like you can figure it out, but believe me, I made a ton of mistakes. Absolutely. My goodness. It's it's part of the game. And especially when it's like our first one and it's our first introduction to business, you're like, how does this, how did these things operate? Like, how is this mm-hmm. possible? <laughs> you know? I'm curious. I, I know this is about me, but I'm curious for you, especially being a woman in real estate and being in construction, which is a very male dominated industry. Like, was it hard for you as like a young woman to be taken seriously to do what you got to do? Oh yeah, for sure. And luckily, like I hired a coach in the space and so in the development world. So like I was able to use that expertise and that knowledge to kind of, you know, level the playing field a bit, you know, so whenever, whenever it seemed like, okay, there's, they're not really listening. It's like you gain your respect through that knowledge. And then if you give that respect out, it's always going to come back to you. So it was almost like kind of balance a balancing act between, uh, between those two things to gain that respect back, even though yeah. you are a newbie to it. You know, I, I came in with the right, you know, with the right coach and the right mentality and you know, the giving mentality. And that has always served and worked for me well. So I always tell people, I'm like, you know, hustle out beats talent every day of the week. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't know anything, you're walking into something as long as you have the willingness to hustle and find the information or tap into the people that do know, it's golden. Yeah. That's so smart of you. I don't know how you became so wise so early, but I think that's right, which is you have to be willing to invest to upgrade, right? Like you hired a coach. It probably saved you like a decade's worth of learning by doing, but you were willing to invest in yourself. And I feel like where I see a lot of women in particular not doing it is not investing in their own knowledge, in their own development being like, well, I'll just figure it out, which like you can, I'm sure that's not a problem, but imagine if you could invest money and get there 10x faster. Right. I, to totally. Me, to me, that that math makes sense, right? Like yeah, I'm going to save myself 10 years by investing this amount of money to get there faster. And if I'm working with someone who I know can do that for me, take all my money every day of the week. Right. And, and get that time hack, right? Like, do you want to spend the Mm -hmm. time and the money to make the mistakes that somebody else has already done? Or do you want to just hack the system and kind of just 
elevate much faster. You know, we, of course there's, I still learn my own lessons throughout that, even with that, sure. but any high risk, you know, any high risk, any business that you really want to be hyper successful in, that's definitely a, a big thing. And yeah. as an entrepreneur, money's a big thing. And I know mm-hmm. that that was an element in which you really dove into as executive director in building that multi-million dollar nonprofit. Yeah. So walk, yeah. walk, walk me through that a little bit, like that journey of like from when you first started and kind of the realizations and the lessons throughout. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting. And Pamela, I'd love to get your perspective on this too. I think when I first started, I was 26, as I mentioned, I think at the time the nonprofit was like 250,000 a year, which is not nothing, but it's not, you know, huge money. And I think I had an orientation to money that was not very helpful, which was really coming at it from a scarcity place of like, oh, I got to like hoard the money, right? Like hold on to it. Like I remember one, we joke about it now because we're we're still dear friends, but my program director and I got into this massive fight because she ordered whiteboard spray. I don't you may not remember whiteboards, but she ordered whiteboard mm-hmm. spray, which was like which is like eight dollars a bottle. And I just lost it because I was like, we made this expensive whiteboard spray. Why are you spending the money? And she you know, rightly came back at me like, you told me that you know this is my decision. And it it was in that fight that I was like, why am I? getting into this over like $8 whiteboard spray, but really it was because I had such deep stuff around money and just really, yeah, like it would never come again that we have to like squeeze every penny. And I think the nonprofit field also reinforces that idea. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying you should spend money wisely. I'm not saying like spend money willy-nilly. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying though, is it wasn't until I understood that money is just a resource. And it was me that was bringing all the emotion into it that I was like, oh, it's a renewable resource. There's a lot of it. There's a tremendous amount of wealth, especially here in New York City. Like there's money everywhere you look. Why am I getting so bent out of shape over an $8 bottle of whiteboard spray when really I need to be thinking about the $80,000 donation, the $800,000 donation, right? Like I, and it was almost like, because I was so deep in scarcity that I couldn't even think about the big money because I was like squeezing the pennies. And so once I got to the point of like, oh, money is just a resource and it flows, right? And I can can make it flow, but first I have to examine all of the blocks that I'm putting up money myself. And a lot of that is couched in my own family and the beliefs that they have about money being scarce. We're never going to have enough of it. Like, I don't know about you and my family. We talked about like, well, money doesn't grow on trees. And who do you think we are? The Rockefellers. And that's for rich people, not for us. Right. So that gets into your brain and you're like, oh, well then that must mean that I'm never going to have enough money. Like I'm never going to have enough. I'm never going to be enough. I'm never going to have enough to take care of myself and to you know, handle what I need to handle. And I think doing that deep inner work of like, wait a second, what if, what if that's just an opinion? Like, what if this is just a story that I'm telling myself, all of a sudden the world opens up. You're like, oh, holy shit. Like, if I can just make money happen on demand, if I can just create value and attract that money, then I can do anything. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned a lot of key things there, especially when it comes to like blocks and, you know, where deep seated conditioning comes in. So for those Mm -hmm. of you who don't know that are listening, neuroscience talks about how from zero to seven years old, anything that we pick up becomes 
our subconscious mind. 95% 95 of our subconscious mind is created by the time we're seven years old. And that is carried Mm -hmm. with us for the entire rest of our lives. So guess what? If you have some conditioning that is not that great and it's going to manifest into your future, it's going to manifest in your relationships, it's going to manifest in your careers, it's going to manifest everywhere because it's in the back Mm -hmm. of your mind. And the scariest part is when you're not aware of it, right? When you have that Mm -hmm. conscious awareness, and then you got to tap in and and really unlearn it, if you will, rewire the neuroplasticity in your brain. It's a whole nother thing. And this is a legitimate science. So this deep-rooted conditioning that showed up in you was rooted from much earlier on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, well, I would like, even Whoa. say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would even say like thinking about epigenetics, for example, and the ways in which information is conveyed through dna like trauma Mm -hmm. is conveyed to the dna so like i was probably living out stories about money from my ancestors right like my village in china people who really legitimately were like we might starve if we don't work in the rice field right in modern day 2023 new york i'm not gonna starve like i'm not i'm good and yet if i'm not conscious of undoing that narrative it can really sneak up on you and you can start really operating from this place of fear and scarcity. So I think you have to be a, to your point, aware of it, and then be constantly upgrading your brain and being very meta, uh, managing what you're, what you think about. Absolutely. And so when this showed up for you, like, cause I know people will be listening to this and being like, okay, well then how do I realize that I have these deep-seated blocks deep within in this conditioning how did you become aware of it yeah oh girl (laughs) it was not overnight and I'll be honest I'm still doing the work right but it's funny I listen to a lot of personal development stuff I'm sure you do too but one thing that I always got confused about was like well what are your limiting beliefs and I was like well if I knew what they were I would like be able to do something about it like that's not helpful to me right it's almost like telling a fish like water is wet you're like what's water so one thing that you might be able to do that hopefully might help your listeners is just sit down with yourself in a quiet moment and ask yourself Growing up, what did you hear in your family about money? What did you see in your family regarding money? Like what did your parents or your caregivers model for you? What emotional experience do you have around money? So for me, like I would see my parents when they would fight, it was usually about money, right? They'd say that you fight about like sex and money are like the two big things that people fight about. My parents fought about money. When they would fight, it was usually about money. So of course, like I had kind of a negative reaction to money, like, oh, well, money makes people fight, not even in a conscious way, but like subconsciously, I right. had that association of like money must make people fight. Money must make people you know stress out. And then ask yourself, well, how did my past with money, how does that affect me today? So for me, that meant things like I wasn't really doing things like actively managing my retirement accounts. It meant that I would like, you know, I, I would hoard money. I would feel really guilty if I took myself out to like get a manicure. Right. But then like I would splurge all of a sudden because I'm like, what money? Like that's to think about like it just needs to be managed. And then I would say for fundraisers, thinking about that emotional connection that you have with money, how does it affect your feelings about fundraising? And and for so many of us who have not done the work, we have a very negative affiliation with fundraising. Oh, I'm begging. I'm on my knees. I'm twisting arms. Like a lot of very negative kind of 
orientations to money as opposed to, which I think is a healthier orientation of like, I'm inviting people to be part of something. And if they don't want to, like, that's okay. It's not personal, but we have to decouple our worth from money and from outcomes because you are a worthy person, no matter what, no matter how much money you have, you have value as a human being. But so often I think we attribute our value as a human to how much money I have in my bank account and how much I can get done in a day. And I think both those lead to burnout. Absolutely. Absolutely, Rhea. Absolutely. And it's crazy how all of that ties together. And you start to realize it. You start to pick up the pieces when you're okay. When you start to lay it out and you're like, I see the pattern mm-hmm. here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like I totally see it and yeah. how to navigate really past that. So like the first step is definitely conscious awareness. And then number two is unlocking those blocks after you recognize what they are. That's the hard part. So walk me through how you kind of. Yeah. I mean, there there are lots of ways to do it. So I know you're a big fan of neuroscience as am I. So I was, I'm a big fan of the Andrew Huberman podcast. I don't know if you listened to that, but he's a neuroscientist and ophthalmologist at uh, Stanford. And he talks about you know, how you train your brain against intrusive thoughts. So if you have, let's say, a thought... So what a belief is, is just that you have over and over again, such that it becomes a belief. Like a belief is just something you think a lot. Two things that you can do. So if you find yourself having a, an intrusive thought that you don't want to have, like, you know, like a song that you can't get out of your head, then the best thing to do is to do something else to get your mind out of that loop. Like go... F- for a run, go exercise, go like read a book, whatever. And that'll turn the noise down. If the thought is actually a harmful thought or is connected to trauma, which a lot of times it is, the thing to do is actually to journal about it. Because essentially by journaling about it, and you got to journal a lot about it, you start to turn down the emotional weight of that trauma. And then it just becomes a story and it actually kind of becomes a boring story, right? But it's almost like, have you ever seen a, a horror movie or something where it's like, da-da, da-da, and it's like, it's scarier, it's scarier, it's scarier. And then like, you open the door and it's like a little bunny rabbit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Right. So I think we also, we ha- kind of have to step into that. Like, what is it really? Is it, is it a bunny rabbit? <laughs> and it, is it our story about what is going to happen that is creating this emotional reaction to me? Because the thing about emotions is that it's the interpretation of stimulus and interpretation of past events that create thoughts in your mind. And then your hypothalamus pumps out neuropeptides in your body that then creates what we call an emotion, right? Mm. So if that's true, if your thoughts create your emotional state, we can choose to change our thoughts. Yes, absolutely. And thoughts become things. I This is, you know, this is literally proven science at this point. If you listen to Dr. Joe Dispenza, Dr. Bruce Lipton, it's like, you know, that intention with the thought, thought powers, energy, some, something like that. And mm-hmm. he's, mm-hmm. you know, like it literally does that. So like everything that you do with intention mm-hmm. manifests, you know, especially if you attach an emotion to it as well. So it's just like, it's just so interesting how the brain <laughs> works like that, right? Yeah. Like, and he talks about quantum leaps and all that stuff. But for those who are listening that have no idea what we're talking about, just keep, keep in mind that this is all about, you know, like your intention, you know, like 
being very, very intentional with your thought process and being aware of all of this programming, because the thing that sucks about all this is that you may realize you're going to have to unlearn some things that you grew up with that you didn't even realize were so deeply ingrained. And that's the work, right? right? Like you said, like the journaling and stuff like that. And I don't want to say that you sit here and you're like meditating and like yoga state and like, it's all peaceful and stuff like that. When you're releasing emotions, trauma, deep conditioning, like it can be a very brutal type of process. Like it's not pretty, it's not pretty. So like releasing. Yeah. Well, you know what it is too, Pamela, and I'm not surprised you're into your defense and all this stuff. So am I, is it's the process of recreating your identity, right? Because let me put it this way. So a lot of people think, let's just say, for example, they go from a do have be, which is like, okay, if I like do a bunch of stuff, right, I'm just going to grind hard, then I'm going to have a bunch of money. And once I have that money, I'll be happy, right? So they go in that order, do be do have be, but actually the better order is to be, do have, which is that I have to be the kind of person that can go out and make a lot of money. I have to be happy in myself. I have to be fulfilled in myself before I can go out there and create the reality that I want to create. Because if I don't do that, if my identity is always tied to the doing, I'm never going to be happy because it's always going to be moving goalposts, right? I'm never going to have enough money. I'm never going to have enough love. I'm never going to have enough validation. So you have to be whole in yourself first and be firmly in your own identity in order to be the kind of person that creates your reality. Absolutely. And I think that's the hardest thing is to get ourselves in that state to attract mm-hmm. that, you know, you have to almost, they Dr. George Spencer talks about this and he's like, you know, the power is now possibilities mm-hmm. exist in the now they don't exist in the past or the future. They exist in the yeah. now. So that gratitude can kind of unlock all of that yeah. possibility. Well, it's, interesting. it's interesting too, when we think about fundraising in the brain. So there's yeah. this uh, researcher in Texas called Dr. Russell James, and he put people in MRI machines and he talked to them about business. And then he talked to them about philanthropy and charity. And what's interesting is different parts of the brain light up. So business lights up one part of the brain. Philanthropy is the same part of the brain that lights up when you talk about family and when you talk about emotion. So what that tells us is, is that philanthropy is actually a deeply emotional action. We use the the facts and figures and the data to back up what we've decided with our hearts. Mm -hmm. And the way that we get into emotional decisions is stories, emotions, to your point, energy, right? This is about bypassing the analytical brain and getting to the emotional brain. And so I think that's why we as fundraisers have to upgrade ourselves so that we can be the stewards of helping people to step into something emotionally fulfilling. Because like, you don't give money because it makes good business sense per se. You give money because it feels good. You give money because it feels right. You give money because you want to tell yourself that you're the kind of person that does X, Y, or Z. No, you're absolutely right when it comes to that. Like, it's just like, there's a whole, you know, you have to get past that analytical brain to get into that emotional state. And it's like, how can you change somebody's internal state is how they will respond to whatever it is that you're saying, right? That's like the core of neuroscience is understanding like what I'm saying, how is it going to land with you? 
-hmm. right? And mm -hmm. me being consciously aware of how I'm sending that message is really, really key. And for fundraising, that is absolutely critical. And I loved what you said what? earlier about like the attraction of that, right? Yeah. That you're bringing that in, you're inviting them in. Yeah. It's not like yeah. a sales pitch, you know? And I think that that's no. key even in business, you know? Yeah. And, and when I have, you know, my team in real estate, that's like, oh, Pam, I feel weird about, you know, telling them about these opportunities. And, they, and I'm like, well, here's the thing that gave me a whole mindset shift is, you know, you're here to help somebody today. And okay. how are you going to do that? You know, and if you're yeah. not going to call or meet the person and offer them what you do, somebody else is going to do that. And and if not, if not you, then who, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's, yeah. that's yeah. another super powerful way to, to think about it. Yeah, I, that's 100% right. Because I think the, so I, I have a couple deep beliefs about humans. And maybe it's just the thing I think again and again, but it's useful for me. I think humans, when they are at their best, seek to connect. We want to be, we want to belong. Yeah. We want to be around yeah. good people. And I think when, as a fundraiser, part of it is that you have to vibrate at a higher energy in order to attract that higher energy, right? If you're coming from a low energy state where you're just like, oh, how do I get that transaction? How do I get that money? It doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good for you. It doesn't feel good for the person that you're talking to. But if you come from a higher energy state where you're making offers, inviting and helping them to achieve something that they want. And you're just the, you're just the conduit. You're just the vessel through which this happens. All of a sudden it changes the whole dynamic. You're like, look, if you're not into the donation, it doesn't mean anything about me. Like it, maybe it just wasn't the right time for you. Maybe I wasn't the right messenger. Maybe it wasn't the right cause. Like that's okay. But there are a ton of people in the world that I, I can help who want to come to my party. So that's what I'm going to do. Right. I'm going to go find those people. And I think it just changes the whole game because then it becomes not about you. It doesn't become about rejection. It's just about who can I help today? I love that so much. Who can I help today? Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you came out of the executive director role at this nonprofit and then you started your own thing with coaching others on how to do this. So walk me through that transition because I love that about helping others. That's exactly what you're doing which then yeah. ripple effects. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, it wasn't an overnight thing. So, you know, talking about setbacks. So after I left being an ED, I actually ended up uh, working for a tech firm for all of two and a half months. And I was like, oh, this is not, this is not for me. So I quit. And it was the first time in my adult life I hadn't had a job. Like I've been working, I mean, similar to you, I, I was working at my dad's shop when I was like 10 years old, like making change at the cash register. So I never didn't have a job. Like I always had a job even during, you know, high school and college, summer jobs, after school jobs, the whole thing. So it was really to the point about identity. It was very destabilized. So it's like, I don't know who I am if I'm not a worker. Like I work. Right. But there was nice, actually. I took a little summer vacay. I was like, okay, let me regroup. Let me, you know, spend some time. And then I ended up just taking on some projects with friends. I was, And I just thought it would be like an in-between thing. I was like, I'll go, you know, job searching, but I'll, I'll take on these projects just to get some revenue coming in. And, you know, one project led to the next to the next. Before you knew it, I was a consultant. I was like, oh, okay. I guess that's what I'm doing. And then at the height of the pandemic, I really pivoted to this fundraising thing because you know, it's the number one thing that everyone running a nonprofit is concerned about and nobody really knows how to do it. And for me, I was like, well, I figured some stuff out. 
I was successful in doing this for myself. So can I help other people do it? And then the other piece, Pam, for me is, you know, as a person, I care about a lot of different things, right? I care about education and the environment and voting rights and women's rights and peace and climate change and like all the things, right? I personally am not going to be able to do all the things. I am one person, but I was like, but here's the thing. What if I could teach all of the people who are doing all the things to bring more resources in so they can do more of the things that can be my contribution to the world. And by the way, I can make money doing it. So it's like, win, win, win. Like, yeah, let's, let me do that. And so uh, the good news is that it's been going really well. So I'm, I have my ninth cohort coming up in September, had over a hundred people go through my accelerator. And I, we've been seeing some tremendous results from people like people getting a million dollar gift, people getting their first six figure gifts, people, you know, a hundred Xing their initial investment. Like we're seeing incredible results. So that's been a lot of fun just to see people on the world, like applying what I've learned and getting great results. So I'll take credit for a little part of it, but it's really just giving people the confidence that they can go out and do it. Absolutely. And I love that. I love that Rhea. And I mean, you've touched on, you know, unlocking your blocks, being consciously aware of conditioning and stuff like that. Now, what are some practical tips for anybody who is thinking about, you know, going out there and raising capital, because it's not just, you know, there's nonprofits, of course, but then there's people in real estate and people that are, you know, are starting businesses and all these things. Like what is like the top piece of advice or a couple pieces of advice that you think would be key? Yeah. You know, I think the number one thing, whether you're doing not-for-profit or for-profit fundraising is to be aware of the other person's needs. Right. Because mm. I think so often we go in with like, oh, this is what I want. This is what I need to do. This is like what I want to get. And really, it's not about you. You need to put yourself in the mind of the other person. What do they want? What are they looking for? What's their end game? And if right. I can align what I am doing with what they want, then we have a deal. Also, I would say like, how do we build trust, right? Because you don't do business with people you don't trust. So how am I showing up in a way that is trustworthy, in a way that makes them feel like I'm treating them like a human being with respect and dignity, not like this transaction? And then the last piece I would say is listen, right? Because I think so often in today's society, we're all just yelling at each other. (laughs) Like you got social media and you've got the news and everyone is just so riled up. And I just think connections happen with conversations like this, where we are giving each other space to share who we are, what we're about, what we care about. And so really the key is to listen and not just listen with an agenda. So my friend, Jason Frizzall uh, shared this with me. There are really three levels of listening. Level one, listening is where I'm listening with an agenda. Like I'm just listening to like hear what I want to hear. And then like insert the thing that I want to say, right? Right. Level two, two listening is listening with no agenda. Like I'm okay. I'm like present. I'm with you. I'm hearing what you're saying. Level three listening, which is really hard to do, but is so golden when you can get it is listening for what's not being said. Mm. And if you can get to level three listening, where I can like read the body language, read the tone, read the energy and be like, what's really happening here? That's where like, human connection occurs. Absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. And the conscious awareness to understand what are the needs of the other person and how can I align with them instead of just like shoving an agenda down somebody's throat, which is what happens mm-hmm. in business all the time, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then fundraising all the time. It's like, okay, here's what I need. Bye. Like, yeah. please donate yeah, yeah. or, you know, like, mm-hmm. please invest in this project. And you're just like, okay, 
You know what yeah. I mean? Like what happens next kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And it's, just, yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating to me how it, how this all gets laid out, but I love those three levels of listening. Like that is amazing and golden. And I'm going to note that because that's incredible. Yeah. I was absolutely incredible. I love hearing the journey and all these tips and all these beautiful things, Rhea, seriously. It's incredible. Yeah, thanks, and, and that brings me to, this is one of my favorite questions ever. And you could take this business personal, whatever resonates with you, but what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now, Rhea? Oh my gosh, so many things. But the single biggest lesson I think will be everything will be all right. Because I think, especially as a younger person, I was so anxious. I mean, I'm so anxious, but I was so anxious as a young person. I was like, really strict, you know, and I think this might be true of type A go-getters. I don't know if you were like this, but I was like really stressed out and like really anxious and like really wanted to like do my best. And I'm not saying that I, I don't work hard. I certainly work hard, but I, I think I work hard now without thinking about what the measurement is and more working hard because I want to create value and I want to mm. help people. And that's a different kind of motivation it's it feels like a cleaner kind of energy versus like that coming from that hustle energy like i just gotta grind harder i gotta work harder i gotta like outwork the person next to me that's exhausting so i would say if i can add just one more thing i had a friend named dodo who was amazing and she was 105 years old when she died and on her voicemail <laughs> you'd call her and on her voicemail they would say hello this is dodo everything is gonna be okay and i was like you know what? She's lived on this planet for 105 years and she has seen some stuff. So if she says it's going to be okay. I want to believe her because, you know, that's like 60 more years on the planet than I have. <laughs> I love that. I love that that was her voicemail. Oh my gosh. Wisdom from Dodo. I absolutely love that. I love that, Rio. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, sometimes we just move so fast through life and it's just like, you know, you're just like, okay, what's on to the next thing, especially type A go-getters. And I totally resonate with that. And it's kind of like, okay, what's next? You know, you achieve this thing. Level one mm -hmm. is done now. Level two is there now. Level three. And it's like, it's going to be a never ending chase unless you like realize like, just chill out. It's all going to yeah. work out and you're going to, there's endless levels to the game. That's right forever. And I will say like, we were talking about neuroscience. So I work with a neurohacking coach who actually is very into Joe Dispenza as well. But he talks about the fact that when we're in fear, we're in fight, flight, or freeze. And this hustle culture that we see everywhere, you know, entrepreneurship, nonprofit, whatever, is actually a fight response because we're so deep in fear that it's not going to be okay. I'm not going to have enough. There's not going to be enough money and I'm going to fail. And like that can be healthy. I mean, that can be useful in the short term, but long term, it's just not a healthy way to live because our bodies were not designed to be under fear and stress and pressure for prolonged periods of time. When we were cave people, we had a saber tooth tiger chase us, we were in stress and then we shook it off and we were fine. But in today's society, like we're constantly under this threat of the saber tooth tiger, which is really just, you know, society. And right. so I think just becoming aware of, to your point, your emotional state and like, what kind of energy are you coming from? And what stories are you telling yourself about why you're doing what you're doing? makes all the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the kind of stories that you tell yourself is what creates these thought processes and so on and so forth. My goodness. It's a, it's a hell of a journey. <laughs> it's a yeah. hell of a well, journey. It really well, is. Being human is such a dream. Being human. Well, listen to podcasts, but 
I thought this was such a healthy way to think about it. He's like, well, the way I think about being a human, it's like thinking about going on vacation, right? So you go on vacation, you get to your place, you rent a car, you drive the car around. And when you're done with the vacation, you bring the car back and you fly back home. He's like, that's how I think about being human. This is just a rental car. I'm just like driving this around for the time that I'm here. And then when I'm done, I'm going to go back home. And I was like, oh my God, we're all just in rental. We, we are all just rental cars. Like that's mm-hmm. it. This human experience, this 3D body for as long as we're here, you know, for some it's 105 years old, others it's not, but it's all just temporary. We're all just in rented cars. Absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking of rental cars, what's happening in the next few months in your world? in your uh, rental car journey. <laughs> well, first and foremost, I want to say, Pam, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for setting such a oh, generous God. table. And I do a lot of these podcast interviews. This is probably one of my favorite ones. So thank you for that. You're so awesome. You're so awesome. So, that has a lot to do with you though, but thank you. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's both of us. It's our energy building. Yeah. But if folks are interested in learning more about what I'm doing, my website is probably the best way to check it out. And you can get my blogs and my podcast and my webinars. It's realwong.com. Also hit me up on LinkedIn. And if there are fundraisers out there, I'm actually opening up applications for my September cohort. So if you're interested in that, you can find it all on my website, realwong.com. Rhea, you are amazing. You are such a light. And I'm just super grateful to have you here today. Super enjoyed our conversation. And just like the high level human stuff that listeners are going to listen to and be like, hold on, I need to like rewind that back a few times just to get it right. But you dropped so many gems that I just, I adore your authenticity, your story, and just all that you do. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pam. And by the way, we got to have you on my podcast. Let's do it. I'm ready. (laughs) All right. I'm all, uh, I'll email your people, but yeah, I'd love to have you come on my podcast and talk about your journey and your experience with philanthropy and how you built your business. Cause I think it's going to be really, really awesome for my audience to hear that. Heck yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Rhea. So that's it for today's episode of underdog catch us next week. Always dropping on Thursdays. And remember, if you're interested in real estate, or want to learn how to create more money and magic in your life, check out meetwithpamela.com and let's chat. Sending you so, so much love. All we know is over time, working like some underdogs. Underdogs.